This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about personal finance. More specifically, we're talking about financial regrets, how to recognize it when you feel it, and how to move past it once you do. According to a recent survey conducted by Bankrate.com, Americans' biggest financial regret is not saving enough for emergencies. In fact, 20% of respondents gave this answer, even topping the reigning top response related to saving too little for retirement. And when broken down further, older millennials, 36% even, were more than twice as likely than baby boomers, 14%, to say that not having a strong enough emergency fund was their biggest issue. And when asked what they intend to do with their money going forward, 26% of respondents said they will save more for emergencies, while another 21% said they would spend less. Of course, this poll was administered in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the financial disruption that has come along with it. But it got my attention that when asked about financial regrets, the answer had nothing to do with saving for the long term. It was about the here and now. And while I'm certainly interested in better understanding the intersection of money and psychology and the ways in which they are inextricably linked in our psyche, I am by no means the expert on this subject. So I decided to call up someone who is. My guest today Asia Evans is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in financial therapy. She likes to say that she's on a mission to get more individuals engaged in living their best life while attuning to their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around money. In 2015, she launched Asia Evans Counseling, a New York-based financial therapy practice where she supports clients to begin working towards a better version of themselves. In addition to her work as a financial therapist, Asia is a speaker, writer, and fintech consultant focusing on the intersection of mental health and money. She believes that whether you're struggling with anxiety, self-esteem, relationships, or regret, gaining control of your finances will help you live the life you want. So with that brief introduction, welcome Asia Evans to the Tech Money Podcast. Hi, Malcolm. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I appreciate you being here. And, you know, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro there. What else should I have included? I mean, it sounded pretty good to me. I was like, oh, wow, I did do all that. (laughs) 
I mean, to be honest with you, I've just worked in and around mental health for almost 15 years at this point and being able to marry the conversation of mental health with money and finances and all of the emotions that come up Mm -hmm. with that has just been a real treat to me and my career. And I have never felt more passionate. So I feel like you you nailed the intro. Okay. Well, I, I will take that. I, I'm, I'm always happy when I get it right on the first try, but I also want to make sure I never shortchange anybody because as you just said, you have a whole career building these different accolades and accomplishments and everything else. And you never really take the time to step back and look at your body of work. And so I just want to make sure I don't miss anything that matters. That's all. Getting it all uh, on the record there. But a question that I have for you, just as we get ready to kind of tee this up, not necessarily the most technical question I could ask a person who does what you do, but I'm genuinely just curious, what is it about financial therapy that you find so interesting that you are willing to start your own counseling practice surrounding these issues related to money? I just feel like money... People talk about money in a way that sometimes is very taboo, and then they talk about it in a way that's very, um, like, cavalier, right? Well, just, like, flippantly, like, oh, my money, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then the second you start getting a little deeper, it's, oh, wait, you want to know my salary? (laughs) No, I I don't feel comfortable. So it's very interesting that there are parts of it that are so ubiquitous to how we function in society and we talk about it, but then other parts that we just completely shun away from are taboo. We don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You want to keep it in secret. And it's an interesting place to be when as a therapist, because there is so much privacy around the conversations that I have in my office or during a session that I felt like it was a beautiful place to start having these conversations about money. And Everybody's got some kind of feeling about money, but nobody's really talking about it. So I just really love the intersection of I am already talking about very private things and wanting to uh, give more space and give more voice to the fact that money does not need to be one of those things because literally all of us have to navigate it in some way, shape, or form. So how can I get people more comfortable talking about it um, in their sessions and then move that conversation hopefully outward to their family, friends, and colleagues and their world around them. So funny enough, I was on a panel not too long ago where we were discussing just that, the fact that, you know, salary negotiations, salary conversations are sort of still taboo. We don't really ever want to tell even our best friends exactly how much we make. And the thing that came to mind right there in the moment that that kind of caught a few people in the audience off guard, I said, you know, it's amazing to me that we're willing to talk about the most intimate details of our sex lives, but we won't talk to people in public about our financial lives. Yeah. And I didn't mean that to be so like, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but it wasn't intended to be crass. I, I meant it literally. But the more I think about it and I look at what's posted on social media and everything else, I stand by it. Like people are even more willing to describe the graphic details of their sex life in front of strangers and even their closest friends and family uh, before they would be willing to to get financially naked, so to speak. I couldn't agree more. And I say that all the time. Literally, I will say that people are more comfortable telling me like who they're sleeping with versus telling me what they make. And and as their therapist, right? I'm not talking about personally. I'm talking about as their therapist. And that to me just shows how deep-rooted 
the vulnerability, the fear, um, the level of intimacy that we have put around talking about our salaries. Yep. Well, we're going to get into that for sure. But before we get too far into the heart of the conversation, I think it's probably a good idea to just define the term financial therapy. Can you even just tell us in simple terms what that even means? Sure. So to me, financial therapy is looking at how do you think, feel, and behave around your money. And the therapy piece is around getting a better understanding of where those beliefs and narratives are rooted and where they come from. And how do we then combine all of that information into making sure that you're able to live a life with your money in a way that feels good to you, that you feel proud of, that you uh, are not holding shame around and that there's no guilt that you have taken the time to heal some of the narratives that are not working for you that were unhealthy and now you're able to function in a better way with your money. So that definition you started out with sounded familiar to me and I was like, man, that's really solid and concise and I feel like I've heard that before and it occurred to me that a mutual friend of ours, Preston Cherry, has been on this show before talking about financial therapy and that is very, very close to the definition that he gave us initially too, which made me realize something else that you probably should have been willing to brag about when I asked you what I should have included in your resume <laughs> at the top of this, because if I understand correctly, you just joined the board of a certain organization. Is that yes, correct? It is correct. You are right. And I did think about it, but I, you're catching me in a shy moment. This is true. I That's fine. I'll brag for you. <laughs> Yeah, I recently was elected to the Financial Therapy Association Board um, to serve for the year 2023 and, you know, serve my board term, which I believe is three years. So very much so looking forward to it. And you are correct. That is exactly where part of the definition of financial therapy is coming from. Okay. I knew I wasn't missing the mark too bad. Um, so, Not at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now we're getting the accolades that I missed initially into the conversation one way or another. I'll just have to Yay. twist your arm to uh <laughs> Just a little bit. There. It's still new. You know, it's like a new jacket. I'm trying it on and it definitely fits. But I'm like, ooh, is everybody going to see me in this new jacket? The answer is yes. <laughs> so I appreciate it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so that brings me to another question, though, because as I mentioned, we've had the conversation, uh, episode 16, for anybody listening who wants to go back and check that one out too, Dr. Preston Cherry. We were talking about the difference between financial therapy and financial planning. Now, I'm going to assume that anybody who's listened to that episode is sold on the fact that financial therapy is something maybe you do in addition to financial planning, maybe you do prior to financial planning. The choice is up to you how it works into your your own personal you know situation. But the question I have for you related to this episode, Asia, is what is the tipping point, if you will, that many of the clients that you see have happening in their world, in their lives that leads them to, I was going to say picking up the phone, but like nobody picks up the phone to call anybody anymore. But what is the, <laughs> to, 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 to type out an email and show up in your inbox. Let me say it that way. What is the tipping point that brings somebody to your front door? Yeah, usually it's they are not feeling good about their money. They either want to be doing something else with their money, whether that is growing it, taking advantage of certain systems, investing, um, getting involved in real estate. They are feeling like they're not able to take that next step mm -hmm. to, to do with their money. 
and I'll underline the do part. Yep. And a lot of the inaction that they're taking is due to how they feel emotionally and their concerns or their fears or their worries. So a lot of people will come to me and just be like, Asia, I am making more money than ever. I feel great about that, but I know I could be, my money could be working better for me. And I am really having this barrier that won't allow me to take the next step with a planner or advisor. Or some people have the planner or they have the advisor, they have a financial professional in their life and they find that they keep getting stuck in a certain place that they're unable to really take advantage of the vehicles that would allow them to create more wealth. So those instances definitely come up. I do see a lot of millennials. I happen to be one as well. And they're navigating what it means to potentially be making more money than their parents. And when I say more money than their parents, it could be anything of, yes, I'm making more money than them, or I'm like double their salary, quadruple their salary, like potentially really large salaries, and they feel very uncomfortable about it. And it is kind of mixing up their feelings around who are they? How do they relate to their family? How do they set healthy boundaries if they need to set boundaries? A lot of stuff can come up when you start discussing money about your family and not everybody is prepared to kind of navigate that. You say uncomfortable. The thing I'm always amazed by is the number of folks who feel guilty for making that kind of money. Oh, yes. Uncomfortable is a nice way to encompass all of it, but it's a lot of guilt and it's a lot of shame. A ton, a ton of guilt. Yep. That that whole survivor's guilt thing where, you know, there's a terrible car crash, a plane crash, something traumatic that happens and you're the one person out of all of the folks impacted who actually stayed alive. And now you're shouldering this guilt of why me? Like, why am I still here? It's amazing how that perfectly translates to money too, especially for folks who are first-generation wealth creators where, like you were describing, they're making more money than anybody in their personal orbit has ever seen and touched. And not only do they not know what to do with it necessarily, but they're like, why me? Yeah. What does this say about me? Who am I? And the thing that we have to remember is some of these parents were doing literally everything in their possible, capable, everything, like using every tool in their wheelhouse to get their kids the opportunity Mm -hmm. to do this. Mm -hmm. And then once it happens, there's this sense of guilt, like, no, no, no. This is what mom and dad and grandpa and aunties and uncles and everybody was working for, for you to get here. Now, how do you continue that legacy for you and your future generations, but then also where's the line that you may want to assist in helping them too? And that comes up a ton when we're talking about people of color in our communities because there is such a heavy emphasis on generational community. So it's really important to kind of work through that guilt, work through that shame so that you're able to do right by yourself, your future family, and the family who came before you as well. So in preparation for this conversation I knew we were going to have today, I did a little bit of reading, I did a little bit of digging online, and I saw in your blog where you described your own experience living in New York City and feeling like you weren't saving as much as you quote unquote should be. Can you talk a little bit about that time in your life and how it led you to sort of this aha moment of improving your own financial well-being before you, you know, the lightning bolt struck you and you decided you were going to go preach this gospel? (laughs) Absolutely. So I, both of my parents are from New York City and I'm from upstate New York and I always knew I wanted to come back down. I had spent my whole life coming 
down to New York City and just spending weekends with my relatives. So when I finally moved like into the city, I was so excited and I was making it rain. I was spending all of the money. I still had a car payment that I was making. I had a what I would define as a pretty fancy apartment. Like I was paying, I believe it was twelve hundred or twelve fifty with one other roommate. Mm-hmm. The first time living in New York City in my twenties with a car payment, with student loan payments. And I was having the time of my life. And do not get me wrong, I think it is equally as important to spend your money as it is to save your money and invest your money. Sure. But I could not afford to live the way that I was living. Yeah. And I I completely agree when you're like, the quote unquote should be. I was like, why don't I have any kind of savings? Like, I think I had maybe one or $2,000 saved, maybe. And that just wasn't enough if anything came up in my life. Um and savings to me at that time was like, oh, if I want to go on vacation, I'm pulling from savings. Oh, if I have an emergency, I'm pulling from that savings. Yep. If anything happens and I need money and I don't have it in my checking, I'm going to savings. So I was not in a position to be living the way that I was living. And I was like, what's going on? I'm in this credit card debt. Something has got to change. I don't think that this is the way it should be. And what really resonated to me in this work now is that I felt awful I felt really bad. I would go out with my friends and have a good time. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, why does nobody else seem stressed? Is nobody else stressed about money? Am I the only broke one? (laughs) And I didn't get it. And nobody was talking about it. And there's a level of vulnerability that comes when you have to say like, bestie, are you in a good financial position? Because I feel like I'm broke. Like, is this normal? Is this weird? So a lot of me first getting into this work came out of me feeling like this. I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt like I was less than because I wasn't making more money, especially in a place like New York City where the wealth is right in your face, Mm -hmm. right? You can see upwards of somebody who makes a billion dollars and somebody who, you know, is not as wealthy and all in one span of like a 10-minute walk outside. So it just... I was really feeling bad about myself and probably my self-esteem wasn't was taking a major blow until I started recognizing that, hey, I feel like this. I'm sure other people are feeling like this too. Well, let's stay there for a second because I, I, I use my air quote should be right initially when I was teeing up that question. And I've heard you say something in the past about the fact that like we have these quote unquote should beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how you then turn to your best friend and say, how are you living like this? Because I'm struggling to live like this and I should have a few more dollars and I should have this or that. What are the impacts of those should beliefs and, you know, how do they impact our beliefs about money going forward? Oh, I mean, shame, guilt, exactly what we're talking about. So, I don't like shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. And I know this is a very therapist thing to say, but there's this idea that you should do this. You should, like, who's the person dictating these shoulds? Now, is a financially healthier position to say, like, hey, Asia, having an emergency fund is going to help you? Mm -hmm. Yes, but who is deciding the shoulds? Who is that? It's the they. Whoever they is, is also who's deciding (laughs) the shoulds. Right. And it's the they is also the they that is saying you should get married at this age and you should have 2.5 kids and you should live in a house and you should. And I am not about that. I am about what actually works for this individual. Mm -hmm. Do you want to get married? Do you want those kids? Do you want a house? 
Like my alternative, and I was talking to a client about this today, my alternative Asia is still living in Brooklyn with my partner and we're living our best life, spending all our money on <laughs> eating out and traveling. She's having a great time. That do you actually want to own a house question mm-hmm. is a heavy one that I find myself yes. asking people all the time and they look at me like I'm crazy when I say it. Because I guess you assume mm-hmm. that a person in my position who does what I do for a living would not be asking you a question that sort of upends that automatic belief that all of us Americans have that by a certain age we're supposed to own a home and have a white picket fence. And I think it was two and a half kids you just promised me. Uh, I have one and let me just tell you, the other one and a half are going to be a struggle. So (laughs) like those kinds of things that are so ingrained because they've been fed to us since we were six years old and, you know, blah, 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 blah. That part is really tough to to get past. But I think what you just said is very important because we do at least have to stop for a second to ask ourselves, why do I even want this thing that I'm fighting so hard to have? Yes. And do yes. I actually want this thing that I'm fighting so hard to have? I think that's a really important question to ask before moving forward. It's my favorite question. I ask my clients all the time, what do you want? Not what do you think your parents want for you? Yeah. Not what do you think you should be doing? Like, what do you actually want? All right. So since this is the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that you happen to work with some younger tech professionals specifically uh, in your practice. What is it about this demographic that makes them ideal candidates for financial therapy? I think. It really is about some of the points that we already touched on, just talking about first-generation wealth creators and wealth builders and how do people navigate the feelings of guilt and shame of leaving communities that may not have been as well off and being now in a financial position where they are financially very comfortable or wealthy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the professionals that I'm seeing are people of color, in there, I think like around, I'll say my youngest client is like 25, maybe. Wow. So 25 to the 40 area. So it's the different life transitions that happen. People are kind of bridging from more entry-level jobs to having been in these companies or these positions for longer, longer term, moving into managerial positions. So their salaries are increasing mm-hmm. and what they want to do with their money, they're more aware of like, hey, yeah, I had a good time. I was partying like I was, right? And and now I just want to be more intentional about what my money is doing, how I'm growing it and what I want to do later on. So I think that combination has been what has made it really an ideal conversation to just have like, let's let's talk about these feelings that are coming up because I'm I'm not really talking about them with too many other people. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me point out that it's not just you. Like I, I didn't get to make it rain as much as I would have at 25 because I did it at 20. Um, so I, <laughs> I graduated college with, I don't know, $12,000 or something in credit card debt. Cause I was like mm-hmm. burning it down and, uh, had a decent job. I worked at a car dealership and was making like more money than, pretty much anybody else, you know, I was going to school with. But 
I now know as an actual adult, that really wasn't that much money. But at the time, mm -hmm. I was actually enjoying myself uh, way more than I should have been. And so fortunately, I figured it out early enough that I took the first 18 months out of school and, and every dollar I made that didn't go to keeping me alive, I just sent right back to paying off that credit card debt. But I just yeah. share that to say that like, you are not alone in that journey that you keep sharing. And for the listener who thinks that, you know, I have to have it all figured out before I show up at in Asia's office, right? That it's the oh, extent of the not. folks who say, I got to get my life together before I can go to church. Like mm -hmm. you are not the only person to have gone through this, but the important thing is getting to the other side of it, right? I can tell you now at the ripe old age of 35, like, there are some serious advantages to having a credit score of 800 plus that I knew existed somewhat when I was 20 and having fun, but couldn't really put my hands on because that was like so far down the road that I wasn't worried about it. Right. But had I stayed in that cycle of accumulating debt, paying just enough to not have the card cut off and rinse repeat, I can't imagine what my life would actually look like today. Right. So right. I just share that mostly so that anybody listening to this understands that like this is not coming from a place of holier than thou. We all go through or I should say most of us go through these types of moments, especially when you're younger. That's when you're supposed to enjoy yourself and make mistakes and take chances and get messy. But now we want to focus a little bit more on like doing things the right way. And so I took that quick diversion, but I do want to bring us back where I was asking you about, you know, working with tech professionals, because something you mentioned about a lot of the folks being people of color, I mentioned the, the term first generation wealth creators, and those two tend to go together, right? It's usually mm -hmm. folks who work in tech are the first person in their family to go to college and graduate. And then they've got this degree in a field that is in demand and pays them more money than they ever thought possible. And then there goes that survivor's guilt that I was talking about. And so it was a bit of a loaded question when I asked you, why are folks in tech specifically a great audience for financial therapy? Mm -hmm. But one other thing I was thinking about was like, there tends to be this misconception that people who are the higher earners in this country are better with money than lower income workers. But that really isn't true at all, right? Can you mm -hmm. help us understand why average or above average earners also struggle with their financial well-being? Well, I think the thing about it is, is one, money doesn't care, right? <laughs> like money doesn't have feelings and people have feelings. So we think that if you're making more money or you have a higher salary, that you are still living exactly the way you would be living if when you weren't making that salary. Yeah. And that is just not the case. Um, I don't want to always say more money, more problems, but you know, I mean, Biggie was on to something. <laughs> and what ends up happening is that you do have more money. So you're like, hey, I can now afford this nicer apartment. Mm -hmm. I can get that designer bag that I have been thinking about for X amount of time. And yes, I'm about that. But what ends up happening is that the lifestyle creep, lifestyle inflation, all of it starts to add up. And then that is what's eating your paycheck. Yeah. I've been having a lot of conversations recently, what the like talking about what the difference between rich and wealthy is. Mm -hmm. And people who are rich 
usually are not wealthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rich is about showing people that you have money. It costs a lot of money to look rich. Like designer stuff is designer and is exclusive and everybody's not meant to have it. And that happens through price. And wealth is about what you're not spending, but what you're keeping and what you're growing. And we need to be really aware of the difference in the two and how we are then able to keep our money, Mm -hmm. right? For potential future generations. And also, like, yes, enjoy some of the nicer things, but not in a way that it's going to hinder you from growing financially. I think Chris Rock summed up that that difference perfectly in, I don't even remember which comedy special it was from way back when, but he said that wealthy is described something you can't get rid of. Like, no matter how hard you try, you really can't get rid of wealth. Like, wealth accumulates on top of compounds on top of itself to the point like you just can't get rid of it no matter what you do rich is something that you can lose after one crazy summer and a drug habit that can be gone in two seconds and that's really the and that you know i know that it's a joke and it's meant to be haha but realistically that is what we're talking about here like Mm -hmm. legitimate wealth is something where the compounding interest on just the money sitting in cash is so extensive that you have to invent ways to get rid of that money if you wanted to, which is the reason, in my opinion, NFTs took off the way they did during COVID, but that's a whole other conversation. But (laughs) like rich isn't what we necessarily think it is because if we think a million dollars is rich, for example, just crossing that threshold, there are people who make a million dollars living in New York City and elsewhere who live check to check. So it isn't yeah. necessarily the be all end all that we may think it is. Yeah, I agree with you that you want to get to that point, right? And you're thinking about that like, oh, I would be so wealthy if I made a million dollars. Oh, I would be so rich. Okay, are you going to still live in the same place you live yeah. in? Do you still want to drive the same car if you have a car? Are you still taking the subway? You know, those things matter. Well, so I started off my intro talking about the bank rate survey regarding the number of Americans who have financial regrets related to, you know, saving or the lack thereof. To bring us back to the original, you know, conversation at hand, could you talk a little bit about why so many of us have regrets related to our money? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of things, but I would first start with the shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. Those dreaded shoulds, they don't go away. Feeling like you should have done something differently. You should have known better. You should have this. You should have that. You should be on your way. So many shoulds. So (laughs) when you are not matching up to where you, again, and I use air quotes, feel like you should be, then you regret some of the decisions that you made that may have taken you away from that path. Mm. So that's why it's really important to think about what you want first. But then the regrets can also come with like a level of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if you did spend money that you didn't have and it was supposed to be going to a bill or a vacation or something else that was important to you, you might have regret about spending that money in the past. And and that I understand. And that is more about, hey, how can I start to look at what I'm going to feel like after I, I make these decisions? So regrets are kind of looking back and feeling like, oh, I should have done something different. I can't believe I did that to myself. I shouldn't have done that. You see the shoulds. (laughs) Well, (laughs) what about the people, though, 
who regret the thing they didn't do with their money, right? The missed opportunities. What types of things do you tell your clients who can't seem to shake the fact that, you know, they missed out on that winning lottery ticket, so to speak, and they have trouble moving past it? Yeah. Um, rumination is going to steal all joy. <laughs> and rumination is just thinking about something over and over and over again and not allowing yourself to move past it. I am all about like realizing, you know what, that was a missed opportunity. That stinks. I really wish I was able to take advantage of that. But once you give yourself that time, we're not going to beat ourselves up over it over and over again. Like you have to be able to say, that wasn't good. I wish I did better. I wish I made a different decision. I know better now. What am I going to do if this ever comes up again? How can I prepare for that moment again if I have that kind of opportunity? But sitting with it and ruminating and beating yourself up about it is not going to make you feel better. I think that there's this idea that, hey, if I'm mean to myself, if I say mean things to myself, I'm going to motivate myself into change. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. You just end up feeling bad. You feel a ton of shame and it actually can hurt your self-esteem. You're not going to feel motivated for change if your self-esteem is in the trash because you've been so mean to yourself. So, Do you ever recommend that anybody actually write it down? Like how they feel in the moment, how it how it feels to them, I guess. I can't think of a better way to say it. Like mm-hmm. where they're feeling, where their thoughts are like right now in this moment. Is that an actual like exercise that you take people through? Yeah, yeah. Not all the time because it really depends on how people feel about like writing or journaling. Mm-hmm. Some people are really into it. Some people aren't. But I will tell my clients like, how do you feel right now? Tell me, like I need to hear the words. Tell me the things that you have said to yourself. Yep. And the mean things that you're saying to yourself, the harsh things that you would never say to another person, but you will say to yourself, tell me those things, write them down. Now, after, you know, a session or two sessions, after a couple of weeks, how do you feel later? What did you do to get you to that later feeling? Now write that down Hmm. so that you know, hey, these are the steps that I took when I was feeling really down and feeling in the dumps. These are the things I did that worked for me. So you have that list to go back to whenever it happens again. And things are going to happen, right? Life happens and it's supposed to. But you have to figure out how you're going to bring yourself out of that hole if it happens again and what works and what doesn't work for you. So documenting can be really helpful. I asked that not so much because I'm a journaler myself. I'm actually like I don't enjoy writing down anything. But what I was thinking about was (laughs) in the context of investing is where I see this a lot, where folks feel they get the shoulds because they should have bought XYZ investment or they should have sold XYZ investment and they can't seem to shake it. And because they can't seem to shake it, they can't move on and do the thing now that as the market has shifted and gotten away from them. We're in a totally different place today than we were in 2020 and 2021 and even 2022. But I talk to people who are still reacting and responding to things that were happening in one of those three previous years. And they can't seem to get past it enough to take action today to worry about what's in front of us because they're still thinking about that back then. And what what came to mind as I was asking that question is we create we have people create an investment policy statement that basically says irrespective of what the market is doing today, I believe this, I'm going to do this, I need to do this thing. And it allows us to make sure that in any market situation, we're still sticking to what's important and what we believe and what we know to do, 
rather than worrying about what everybody else in the market and in the media and everything else is is doing. Yeah, and I would say that when you have clients like that, then they should probably come talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm like, because now we're we're getting out of the action part of the money and into the emotional part of the money and holding yourself to that standard of two years ago or yesteryear, whatever the time frame is, if that is hindering what you're able to do now, then then we need to figure out how do we move past this? Like what's going on? What are you doing to yourself that will not allow you to move past that? Yeah. What are you saying to yourself? Yeah. So that makes perfect sense to me because I think about the investing side of it, but then I also think about, you know, we deal with folks who work for startups sometimes, right? And there's an opportunity to work for XYZ company before it becomes something. And then you say, no, I'm going to go for safety. I'm going to go work for Microsoft or Google or whoever. That's a much more established company. I know what I'm getting there. And uh, that feels safer to me. And then you look up five years later and the company you passed on is suddenly getting acquired by one of the ones I just named, right? Like Microsoft or Google or whoever. Mm -hmm. And then there's that part. Like I can't get over the fact that I missed out on that big payday that I could have had and I should have had. And if I had that, then I would be able to do this thing and that thing. And now I'm just kind of stuck because I, I, I'm focused on the grass that would have been so green that I can't really appreciate and think about, you know, where I am today. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, okay, well, let's go back to yesteryear. And you didn't want to do that. <laughs> you knew that was a possibility, like, yeah. but you wanted stability. So that to me says that you want to prioritize stability. Would you be comfortable having lived the last five years knowing that your job could have completely imploded or could have like sold and you would have all this extra money to do other things? Are you comfortable with that level of risk? Because it sounds like your choice yeah. was no. It's a really good point. That That's also a really good way to frame it. How could we reframe the word regret in a more healthy way when it comes to our financial well-being just in general? I mean, I really like missed opportunity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like we're all going to have missed opportunities. It, it's just part of the world, right? Like we... We live a certain way. Things may come up. You might have taken the left turn instead of taking the right turn. And now you're in traffic and Google told you to go this way and you didn't. And now you're in the traffic. Yep. So there's always going to be things that you could have done differently, right? To your point, the should haves, the could haves. That's always going to come up. It is a missed opportunity. It doesn't mean it is going to be your last one. And what happens with regret is that you feel like there are going to be no other options for you. There's no other opportunities that are mm -hmm. going to come up. And that's not true. So we just have to shift out of that kind of thinking that this is the last and final opportunity. And I know it's really sexy right now to talk about scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. And scarcity is coming out of fear that it won't ever happen again, fear that you won't have this again. And it will come, right? Like if you recognize, hey, I need to be doing certain things. I need to be learning certain things. I need to be reading and just be in the know. So I'm aware of when the opportunities are happening and how can I take advantage of them? Gotcha. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better, so I won't. <laughs> I will just, uh, <laughs> um, but before we get ready to wrap, what would be your main message to folks who, you know, want to take the first step in better understanding and improving their financial well-being? 
Uh, I would say that money is emotional. Yep. And it will stay emotional until you start working on it. You cannot out-earn yourself from money being emotional. You can't under-earn yourself from money being emotional. You really have to start getting to the core of what your beliefs and what your narratives are around money. And do those still apply? And that does take time and work and effort to just start really understanding how do you think about money and how does it then impact what you do with it? And it takes time. Are there any exercises maybe that you give people to to do at home as they start on that journey to understanding? Yeah, awareness, I think, is a big one. So start asking yourself, like, why do I think like this? Oh, I feel bad. How come? Yeah. What's going on? What does this bring up for me? Are there certain memories that this is tied to? Do I have certain beliefs? Start really getting honest with yourself about why why you're having these feelings and labeling those feelings. A lot of times we just push them down or push them aside or bury them as if they're not important. And they're very, very important. That's information for us to tell us, hey, I'm comfortable, I'm not. And you kind of have to get to the reason why you may be uncomfortable, why you're feeling that shame, why you're feeling that regret, why you're feeling that guilt. And that, you know, sometimes people don't really want to go to those vulnerable places within themselves, not even sharing it with other people, but mm-hmm. just being aware that, hey, this is this is my honest feeling for myself. Well, my last question has presumably nothing to do with what we've been talking about for the last however many minutes now. And so you can <laughs> relax your shoulders a little bit and 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 take off your therapist hat for a moment. But let's just say for a moment you never found your passion for financial therapy and financial literacy and and so forth. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days. But money was not a factor in your decision making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Traveling and eating. Okay. Traveling to anywhere specific, eating anything like you just all of it? I would just, yeah, all of it. Traveling, eating, learning a language and and figuring out how to either share that with other people or, yeah, it could be anything from sharing with other people like a friend or sharing it with other people to like the masses in like a book form. But yeah, if I wasn't doing this and I wasn't worrying about working and I had the money to travel and eat, Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be, yeah, I'd travel, eat, write about it, read about it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks, Asia. This has been great. I, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or uh, Asia Evans Counseling after this goes live? Sure. So you can find me on um, some of the socials, right? You can follow me on Instagram at Asia E Therapy. I'm also on LinkedIn, hanging out there, as well as um, I'm slowly dabbling into TikTok, (laughs) (laughs) which has been fun, and on my website, of course. Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social media at Malcolm on Money. And feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech 
tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...